welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, hello, how are we doing? I'm going to attempt to uh, control the slides from my phone if this works. Uh, so I'm not checking my email, if you're wondering. Uh, not yet, anyway. Uh, well, as Micah said, my name is Stefan. Uh, I'm a friend of Micah, and I'm from Minneapolis. I don't cross the river much, and so I'm a little bit in foreign territory today, so thank you for being hospi- hospitable. Uh, I run a nonprofit for a living. That's my day job. I have the incredible privilege of uh, getting to spend time with young people uh, in schools and bring mentors into their life and help the adults around them do a better job of caring for them. And so that's how I spend my days. Um, I am just a couple things you should probably know about me just so you're aware because if you find out later you might feel duped. Uh, I'm a seminary dropout, okay? So um, proceed with extreme caution this morning. And then the other thing is, is I may or may not have convinced your pastor uh, to bartend with me at a little cocktail lounge on Monday nights in Minneapolis. And so not only am I a seminary dropout, I'm a very bad influence on your leadership. Uh, So I just say, you know, proceed with extreme caution. Uh, I want to start with a question, and the question is this. Why are you here? I want you to take 10 seconds. I'm going to watch the clock. Think about why are you here, and don't overthink it. Whatever pops in your mind, just go with it. And then we're going to share it with a neighbor, okay? So 10 seconds, just reflect to yourself why you're here. I'll watch the clock, and then we'll share it with a neighbor. All right, 10 seconds, and go. All right, and that's 10. Now, if you could turn to a neighbor, somebody close by you, what did you say? What did you think about? Why are you here? Just answer that question for each other. All right, let's hear some, just throw out some answers. What'd you say? Better life. Community comfort. What else? I have to. You have to? (laughs) Yes. I knew what that was like for 18 years as a kid. Yeah. Why else? Why are you here? To grow and love and learn. What did somebody... Oh, this community, all right, what else? Other reasons? Yeah, what? Your parents are here, yeah. And you do not want to be an unaccompanied minor is what they call that. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, we all do come for for different reasons, for various reasons. I'm here for two primary reasons. The first reason is the most significant, and that is because my friend Micah asked me. Um, I value relationship. It's one of my top values. And if my friends ask for something, I do everything I can to say yes. And so that's the, the primary reason I'm here. But the second reason I'm here would be the reason I would go into any church. And that reason is this, that I still have hope that the community of Jesus followers have something significant to contribute to each other and to the world when it comes to hope and redemption 
and faith and love. I still have hope that we can be that for each other and for the world. And so that's why I come with other people. A friend of mine says we need to go to church to remind ourselves that we're not crazy. Because to lead a life of sacrificial love is crazy. And you need to be around other people who are doing the same to be reminded you're not crazy. And that's why I'm here. I think a lot about the world. I spend my days, as I said, with young people and in neighborhoods and in communities. And I see a lot of stuff going on in our communities. But then you turn on the news and you can't, you're just hit. It's like an ambush of division and hatred and demonization and all these kinds of things. And I sit there and wonder, do we have anything to say about this as followers of Jesus? Do we have any role in how this all plays out in terms of our society around us? And what I kind of think is a lot of times we spend our time talking about the symptoms of issues. They're not the real problems. One of the things that we talk a lot about um, in my community is violence. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of sitting with some summer school students in a community that's a, a racially concentrated area of poverty outside Minneapolis. And we got together in this room of young middle school students, and we asked them, what are the top challenges middle school students experience in this school? Right? And we just started writing everything they said down on a board. And it was like probably 40 things, and it ranged from the cafeteria food is terrible to we don't have enough food. After we got all of that list out, we gave them three little stickers. We said, okay, go pick the top three. What, what do you think are the three biggest challenges for a middle school student in your community? And so they all go and vote, and before you know it, there's three things on that wall that pop out way above everything else. And we don't have time to go through the process today, but I would love to. I've asked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of adults if they could guess what those three were, and nobody's ever gotten it right. Their perspective of their own experience is unique. And the things that they said, it was gossip, peer pressure, and fighting. Now, when I was in school, peer pressure had to do with things like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what it was. But when we asked them about what the peer pressure was, the peer pressure was about fighting. And the way the cycle worked was like this. Somebody would say something about you on social media or something like that, gossip, and a friend of yours would say, are you going to let them disrespect you like that? And now you feel like the entire world's looking at you. Are you going to stand up for yourself or not? And before you know it, there goes the fighting in the hallways. And it was this cycle, right? And so as we're talking about this, the teachers are standing around the outside and everybody's writing down as fast as they can because nobody had ever heard young people talk about their challenges this way. So the next thing we decided to do is like, well, if we're going to talk about challenges, we have to talk about solutions. So we divided up everybody into three groups. One gossip group, a peer pressure group, and a fighting group. And I got the fighting group. So I sat with this group and I said, okay, tell me, what are the solutions to fighting in your school? And they start rattling off things and I would write them down on, on a big piece of paper. And I got done and looked at the list. And I'm like, I don't believe a word of this. And I looked back at the students, I said, do you seriously believe these are the solutions? And all of a sudden, these students just kind of sheepishly looked down and they shake their head, <laughs> no. They had given me the solutions they thought the adult wanted to hear. But I didn't want to hear that solution. I wanted to hear theirs. And so I pushed them. I said, this doesn't work. Tell me why it doesn't work. And this eighth grade girl raises her hand 
And she says, because nothing on that list addresses our anger. Now we're getting to problems. We're moving beyond symptoms of problems to actual things that people are dealing with. One of my heroes, John Vanier, that I'll mention a lot over the next few weeks, he says, violence is always a message. And really understanding violence is the key. How do we do this together? And when we look in our communities, I think we, we see a lot of symptoms that we're trying to address. And we're not getting to some of the core problems. And when we get to those core problems, I believe the church is uniquely built to say we have an idea. A couple weeks ago, I heard a New York Times columnist, his name's David Brooks, I don't know if you ever follow David Brooks, but he was speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And he was talking on three crises that he sees happening in our society. The first crisis was, was isolation, it's loneliness. And working with young people, I can say almost every young person I've ever met feels alone. They don't trust their friends, they don't trust their teachers, they don't trust anybody around them. And in some ways, the not trusting is a, is a, is a protective mechanism so that they don't get hurt. But when you look into adults, adults are the same. They estimate in recent studies, 54% of Americans feel like actually, that no one actually knows them, 54%. Mother Teresa, when she was alive, she said she saw America as the most impoverished country in the entire planet. The reason? Loneliness. She says, I've never seen a country more lonely than America. America is not alone in this. Great Britain, they did a study in Great Britain and they, it came back, nine million people said they were lonely. And it, it was so extreme that recently, I don't know if you know this, Prime Minister Theresa May, she formed a new role for Britain and it's a minister of loneliness. It is a government position, no joke, because it was such a, it's such a serious situation in Great Britain. There's a grant study that Harvard did. They started it over 75 years ago where they tracked a group of college students and they wanted to see what were the things that helped with successful, long, happy lives. And they've been following this group of students and now their spouses, their kids, and their grandchildren for over 75 years. And what they're finding now, because there's still a few of them alive, the thing that was the overwhelming piece for a healthy, successful life was loving relationships. It impacted their social life, their spiritual life, their emotional life, and their physical life, physically healthier. Now loneliness is taking its toll, not just on our social being and our spiritual being, but our physical beings as well. This year, 45,000 people will take their life by suicide. Seven out of 10 of those people will be white men. To give you an idea, uh, I think in Vietnam, over the course of 20, 20 years, we lost 58,000 Americans. 45,000 people will commit suicide. They estimate that for every successful suicide, there's 25 attempts. We are a lonely, hurting people. And it goes beyond just mental illness into something very significant. We're dying of loneliness. The other thing that David Brooks talked about was alienation. And he talked about this problem where nobody trusts anybody. And we especially don't trust the institutions around us. And it's problematic for Americans because we're a country built on institutions. If you don't have a good relationship with your school, your bank, 
your post office, <laughs> your, you know, your church, all these kinds of things. This is how we integrate into our society. We're a society built on institutions, and now that trust of those institutions is being totally destroyed. Here's some stats from a Gallup poll that these are the numbers of people in America that say they have high trust or somewhat trust in these institutions. The Supreme Court, 37% of Americans trust it. Public schools, 29% of Americans trust it. The presidency, 37% trust. Banks, 30%. News outlets, 20%. Police is actually one of the highest at only 54%. 54% of Americans trust police. The criminal justice system, 22%. Congress, 11%. That's how much the institution of the Congress is trusted. And the church is 38%. 20 years ago, in 1998, the church was 59%. It's decreased that much in 20 years. And because we don't trust institutions, we don't connect ourselves to institutions. And you end up being alienated from the way that our country functions and works and is structured. The third thing that David Brooks talked about was a crisis of meaning. It's a crisis of purpose. I've spent hours and hours with young men in particular, and I watched the same thing happen. Through their 20s, it's, I'm going to build a career, make money, and all of these ideas, and they're building their resume, and they get to their 30s, and all of a sudden they hit a brick wall, and they wonder, what am I doing with my life? I've seen it over and over again. I think we've done a good job of helping young people build resumes, but I'm not sure we've done a good job of helping young people build lives. I have not been to a funeral yet where somebody has talked about how great of an accountant the deceased person was. It's always about relationship, what they contributed to their family, to their friends, what they contributed to the other. It's a sense of purpose and meaning. And yet, so many young people are wondering, where do I go? There's not tethered to something. And so we have a crisis of meaning. If David Brooks is right in his assessment of our society's ills, do followers of Jesus have anything to say? Do we have anything to offer that would provide healing and hope to these problems? My assessment is that we've lost the plot a bit. And I think we've become victims of these diseases like everyone else. I think we're lonely and alienated, and we're searching for some meaning. As a result, we are prone to the same fear, apathy, anger, violence, cynicism, and hopelessness. I think God's vision for us as individuals and as a church is something very different. And that's what I want to talk about for the next three weeks, if that would be okay with you. One of the challenges that I have with this setup is that I'm not part of your community. I don't know what's going on in your community, what you're thinking about, talking about, wondering about. And so I'm an outsider coming in. And I want to give you full permission to just ignore anything I have to say. Just reject it. If it doesn't line up with what's relevant and valuable to you, because um, I'm flying a little blind, uh, you, you have permission to do that. Just because I'm standing in this place does not mean you need to believe me. I read this little book a few years ago. It was written by uh, a man named Elton Trueblood. He's a Quaker, 
and a professor of philosophy. And he wrote it in 1948. And it was right after World War II. And he was noticing some things after the war about how people who had been in the middle of the war talked about it. And this is one of the things uh, he said. He said, great numbers of people in Britain say openly that they look back to 1940 and 41 with nostalgia. Those were the days in which they really lived. There was the constant danger of invasion and all the resultant horror. There was the bombing, but there was more. People stood shoulder to shoulder, united by a common pride. They were sustained by great rhetoric and by great deeds. Life had significance. Now all is different. Now there is no danger, but only a constant round of petty restrictions. Life has become commonplace and humdrum. Can you imagine looking back at war and feeling a little sentimental about how much it brought people together? I think we've had moments like this in, in our, I think 9-11 was one of those moments for America where we, we came together around some stuff. But it was incredibly tragic. It was destructive. But we have an amazing ability to, to unite around some of these things. Um, recently I saw this, uh, this news article about they had a vote in the Senate recently and all the Republicans and Democrats voted unanimously together. And they said, you know, uh, we can still do it. We can still unite. You know, it's, it's like we're, we've, there's hope. Well, what they were voting on was something with Russia. Man, we can come around a common en enemy real quick. We'll come together around a, con a common enemy. And the question that I have is, is that the only way we're going to come together? Is it a common enemy? Elton Trueblood goes on to say this, Millions will prefer war so long as they lack in their inner lives a living faith which gives significance to their existence. We end up uniting around lesser things. And True Blood thinks it's a spiritual problem. That there's something in us that we haven't, it's not fully developed. And so we settle for something less. It's a spiritual problem. And the question is, what is the purpose we can unite around that we can strive for? A purpose that is redemptive and restorative versus destructive and divisive. Another way to ask it is where do we find spiritual solidarity? Because I think as we look at a world, we can quickly say it's so divided, but I think if we looked inside of our church walls, we would say the same. There's things that I guarantee I could not bring up this morning without causing a lot of things that made people uncomfortable. And it's because we know We've got views and perspectives that if somebody else knew, it would cause conflict. How do we create something together? How do we have something else? Well, this spiritual solidarity, something that brings us together, um, there's two, two kind of ways that I think this happens that True Blood talks about. And the first one is um, we, we come together around tragedy, right? Uh, I was just recently in, in Florida at a church, and they are very involved in Haiti. And a few years ago, with the earthquake in Haiti, it was like that whole church just rallied, but not just the church. The city rallied, the country rallied, and the world rallied. All of a sudden, before you know it, it's like text this, and you can send 10 bucks to Haiti. And just like that, everybody kind of came together around this tragedy. And we still have this, hurricanes, natural disasters, things like that. All of a sudden, we'll just unite very quickly around something. The problem is, is that most of those things are temporary. 
They come and go. And in our culture, we move on fast, right? So it's like we got a tragedy, everybody's, we got to do something, and then, you know, 24 hours later, we're on to the next thing. A few years ago, I was driving to a church. I was, um, I'm a, a musician uh, by trade in a previous life, it feels like now, but um, I was going to lead worship at this church in Detroit, Michigan. And I pulled up to a stoplight, and all the stoplights are out, and people are looking around like, what's going on? And people are getting out of their cars and kind of freaking out. And I'm like, what's the deal here? So I turn on my news, and there's a blackout across the entire city of Detroit. It goes up into Canada and all the way to the East Coast. Do you remember this? No power, and nobody knew why. So right away, immediately, everybody thought it was a terrorist attack, things like that, but nobody knew actually what was going on. And so we spent uh, a little over 24 hours in the dark in Detroit. I tell you, I got some stories from that uh, <laughs> that we don't have time to get into. Um, but there's a community in, in Canada that um, Jean Vanier was talking to me about, and he said, he said they came together at that time when it was blackout, and they would go into like churches and gymnasiums, and people would bring food, and they had blankets and things like that, and everybody came together, and they're sharing, and, and just because nobody knows when the lights are going to go back on. There's no idea. So you're kind of in this thing, and everybody's a little nervous, but the community came together and was serving each other in this context. And Jean said this thing that was fascinating. He said, you know, the tragedy wasn't when the lights went out. The tragedy was when the lights came back on. Because as soon as the lights came back on, what did everybody do? Head right out those doors to your home. And now your neighbor is somebody you say hi to when you wave in the morning, uh, leaving for work. These are temporary things. And the question is, is there something that's not temporary? And what I would like to submit to you this morning that the answer is yes. And that is this. It's a common devotion to a great cause. It might not be as sexy, and it requires remarkable endurance. True, true Blood says it like this. It is ultimately the only true way in which people can be united and inspired. If we can find a sufficiently positive cause to inspire people's loyalty, and if we can present it in such a way that millions are committed to it, we shall be on our way toward a cure for the sickness of Western humanity. What humanity needs more than anything else is a restoration of faith in something which will dignify our existence. This is the way of salvation. I think this is where it's crucial that we remember our history. Why we came today um, might be a lot of different reasons. But the fact that we would even gather in the first place is because of a little group of people 2,000 years ago who decided to follow a way that was controversial, radically inclusive, and it upset almost every system in the region. That's why we're here. It was a little group of people. The Bible describes this group early on uh, with the, the people that were closest to Jesus as um, the community kind of gathered around. And this is some of what the scriptures say about this group. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Later on in Acts 4, it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That's our history. Radical. <laughs> Common devotion to a great cause around this person they knew as Jesus and following his way. And what's crazy about it is their community was their evangelism. It was their community. Most of the New Testament is made up of letters written to these little communities that popped up all through the Middle East. And a lot of times those letters get attributed to one person writing it. That person is a guy by the name of Paul. But if you actually look at the letters, most of those letters are from a little group of people. It's not just from Paul. It's a little group. One of those groups was the church in Thessalonica. And the book is called First, it's Thessalonians, a letter to the Thessalonians. And it starts out Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Those, those were the guys who's writing to this little community. And this is what they say to the Thessalonians. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So here's the picture. Three people go into a city and it says, you saw how we lived among you for your sake. So remove a church service from your, your mind right now. And these people became imitators of these three people. And before you know it, everybody throughout the land understood their faith in God. Because three people decided to live a certain way for the sake of the community they lived in. It was about imitation. It wasn't about developing a whole bunch of ideas and theologies. It was about imitation of a way of life. That is why we are here. And the question is, do we have lives now that other people would want to imitate as well? That regardless of who we meet, they might see our life and say, I want to live like that. How are we living among the people for their sake? True Blood's thought is this, and it's a little long, so I apologize, but I think it's pretty profound. He says this, once long ago there was such a faith and it swept the ancient world with remarkable speed. It began in such a modest manner, in such an out-of-the-way place, that the unbiased observer at the beginning would have considered any suggestion of its success a fantastic proposition. Once there were a few unlettered men in an obscure province, and their movement was obviously a failure, for their leader had been executed. Yet something so remarkable happened that within a generation, these men and others like them were beginning to make a difference in the entire Hellenic Roman world. 
They brought to a civilization suffering from a sense of futility, a genuine lift, and finally, when the Roman power fell into decay, they provided the main structure of faith upon which civilization could be rebuilt. If we ask how this most remarkable of miracles of history was performed, we are amazed at the simplicity of the method. The world needed a saving faith, and the formula was that such faith comes from a particular kind of fellowship. Jesus was deeply concerned for the continuation of his redemptive work after the close of his earthly existence, and his chosen method was the formation of a redemptive society. He did not form any army, establish a headquarters, or even write a book. All he did was to collect a few unpromising men, inspire them with the sense of his vocation and theirs, and build their lives into an intensive fellowship of affection, worship, and work. We are so hardened to the story that it is easy for us to forget how explosive and truly revolutionary the Christian faith was in the ancient Mediterranean world. The church at first had no buildings, no separated clergy, no set ritual, no bishops, no pope, yet it succeeded in turning life upside down for millions of unknown men and women, giving them a sense of life's meaning and superb courage in the face of persecution and sorrow. Once a church is a brave and revolutionary fellowship, changing the course of history by the introduction of discordant ideas. Today, is it, a place, it is a place where people go and sit in comfortable benches, waiting patiently until time to go home to their Sunday dinners. Ooh, a little zinger at the end there. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was wrote, written 60 years ago. 60 years. And I wonder if we've lost the plot a little bit. Not just in what we can go do, but where we come from. That we have it in us to live in a kind of way that the lonely could find friendship, that the alienated could reconnect, and that the people who are experiencing a crisis of meaning and purpose could find something to give their lives to. We have the capacity to do that with each other. It is remarkable. It is remarkable that we can do that. And our world needs it. Since that time, people have been trying this. One of my favorite groups is a group called the Clapham Sect. Anybody heard of the Clapham's? They just called them the Clapham Sect. They're from Clapham, Clapham, England, and they gathered around and they wanted to address some of the things going on in Great Britain. It was the late 1700s, and they were made up of prominent, wealthy, engaged uh, folks. Uh, they were engaged in philanthropy and committed to the social and spiritual health of Great Britain. Their members included clergy, business people, estate managers, playwrights, educators, scholars, bankers, and politicians. They were responsible for starting schools for the poor, prison reform, philanthropy, and a number of societies to lift up children, women, and the poor. They were serious about this idea of a redemptive society. But they set out one goal in particular that I still can't believe they wanted to get after. Now remember, this is just a little group. It's not a you know, church. They were uh, believers in Jesus, and they would gather in churches. But it's a little group that had all these different skills and passions, and they put it together uh, towards a common cause. And the one goal they wanted to do was eradicate slavery in Great Britain. Crazy. A little group who says, we want to eradicate slavery in Great Britain. And the problem with slavery is not only is it um, an unimaginable degradation of humanity, 
but societies and ec economies get built on it. They get built on the system. So if you disrupt that system, you disrupt everything. But there was one guy who gets credit for this, but it was a little group, because it always is. His name is William Wilberforce. Anybody know William Wilberforce? Heard of that name? Yeah. So he was a politician, and his job was to get it uh, eradicated within the, po the political world. But they did everything on the other side of the spectrum as well, just little tiny things. One of the things that happened is young people stopped putting sugar in their tea because sugar was a product of the slave trade. And it made the older generation really mad because it was a tiny little thing of civil, civil disobedience. Just like, nope, no sugar. And it went all the way into the politics. The authors, they were writing things about slavery. They were bringing people to slave ships, showing people what was going on. It was this common devotion to a great cause. Uh, William Wilberforce's mentor was a guy by the name of John Newton. Anybody know who John Newton is? He was a slave ship captain. Later on in his life, he came to grips with what he had done with his life, and he decided to turn around and go a different direction. It's called repentance. He also wrote a song that many of you probably have heard called Amazing Grace. So he was the mentor for young William Wilberforce. And so they went at this problem of slavery, uh, and they started pushing for abolishing it. In 1807, the Slave Trade Act was passed, which banned the trading of slaves throughout the British Empire. And listen to this, in 1833, slavery was abolished in Britain, and the slaves were emancipated. A few months later, William Wilberforce died. The power of a little redemptive society, looking around and saying, do we have anything to contribute here? Do we have anything to say about this? What could we do? And so if we fast forward to 2018 in St. Paul, Minnesota, what do you see? When you look inside and out, what do you see? What are the things we say, can we come together? If John Newton was to walk in here today and he would see a teacher and a writer, a designer, an entrepreneur, an accountant, a salesperson, a lawyer, a student, a banker, a politician, a lobbyist, an administrator, a counselor, a stay-at-home dad, a retired person, a pastor, what possibilities do you think John Newton would see? We have a problem that I think when we look at our country and we look at some of the things going on, we go to a place of futility. Well, what could we do? It's bigger than us. And I think the only reason we, we go there is because we forget where we came from. We forget that it was always about a little group of people who would live in a certain way, where others would want to imitate it. Their generosity and compassion and sacrificial love was unheard of and it upset everything around them. It's the vision that I think God had from the beginning about what God's people would look like. And it's a vision that's still available and that we could move towards today. And so, um, I wanna end with this quote by Margaret Mead, and I, I tattooed it on my arm because I wanted to remember it. Um, she says this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I'd like to close this way. I want you to take a few minutes just to reflect to yourself on this quote and ask yourself two questions. The first question is, what would I want to change? And then the second question is, 
who are the people around me that would want to change it too? And what if we just had a conversation? What would I want to change? And who's the little group of folks that might want to change it too? So take a few minutes and then the band will come back up and we'll close. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.